As you know, Canada fulfilled its mandate to uh, welcome 25,000 Syrian refugees by the end of February. Uh, and uh, we're now working on our second commitment, which is to welcome 25,000 government-assisted Syrian refugees uh, by the end of 2016. We've already brought more than 17,300 to Canada. Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of immigration, refugee, and citizenship law and policy. I'm Stephen Mirrens. Uh, and I'm Peter Edelman. Uh, we're here with uh, Professor Jennifer Bond from the University of Ottawa today. Uh, we're very fortunate to have her in Vancouver. Uh, Jennifer uh, was one of the founding executive members of the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers uh, and uh, just recently uh, ended a gig as the uh, special advisor to the Minister of uh, Citizenship and Immigration on uh, Syrian refugees. Uh, so welcome, Jen. Uh, glad to have you with us today. Thanks very much. It's uh, great to be here. So um, we're, why don't we start off by talking about why you're here. It sounds like a very interesting uh, conference or, or meeting uh, out at UBC today. Sure. Um, yeah, there's a, a group of people from around the world who are interested in looking at how we might reform the refugee system uh, to really actualize the idea of responsibility sharing. So we can see that our, our, our system is not able to provide meaningful protection to the millions of people who are uh, currently needing it. Uh, unprecedented numbers of global displacement, uh, all kinds of secondary movement from people who aren't able to find uh, durable solutions in their country of first asylum. Uh, but I think there's some really fundamental questions about how we fix the system. And uh, this doesn't mean looking behind the Refugee Convention, which I think everyone recognizes as an essential tool, but rather how we operationalize our commitments in the Refugee Convention in a way that provides more meaningful protection. So I'm delighted to be here with a group of, of really interesting people, and, and we're diving into that uh, to that topic. Okay, and we were talking earlier, I think, uh, so James Hathaway's here, and uh, I understand people from uh, some, some of the other big names in, uh, in academia. Um, we were talking earlier about uh, a couple of economists who've come up with an interesting model. Uh, are you able to talk about that, or is that, uh, or are these uh, are these kind of closed door sessions? Uh, yeah, I think I think right now there there are closed door sessions, um, really with the objective of moving forward um, some of our own internal thinking to try to come up with some concrete proposals. Uh, that might be useful heading into the summits in September in New York City and beyond that. Uh, there really is, I think, an appetite globally to talk about some of these issues and think about uh, creative solutions. And this is an attempt for people from different parts of the world doing different kinds of work to get together and have that conversation. So we're delighted to be hosted by uh, the University of British Columbia and Catherine Dover. And uh, I think there will be some statements coming out of that discussion, but uh, I can't discuss it yet since we're still putting down the details. Yeah. So how does, for those who may not know, how does the selection of refugees work currently internationally right now? Like, are there current quotas that countries are expected to take in? Is each country able to volunteer and still be in compliance with requirements under international law? So it's a great question. I think that we should imagine the international refugee system as having two primary components. The first focuses on a country's responsibility when people arrive at their borders. So we would typically call those spontaneous arrivals. We, we use the, the, the terminology of asylum seeker or claimant here in Canada frequently. Those are people who arrive and a country has an obligation to, to consider their claim and make sure that they aren't returned to, to any forms of harm. 
We also have a resettlement program, and those are the programs uh, which have really become um, of interest in Canada over the last uh, few months in particular. Those are programs where the state proactively agrees to take people in um, who haven't arrived at their borders but who are already refugees. So they've fled their country of origin. They're somewhere else in the world, but they aren't necessarily um, settled there. They aren't necessarily finding long-term solutions there. Uh, and countries like Canada are able to proactively offer them uh, an opportunity to come to our country and, and to, to make a life here. So the recent uh, Syrian Refugee Initiative, with which many Canadians are familiar, involved equipment of, of 25,000 uh, resettlement spots. Those are people who didn't make their way across the water, but who Canada proactively puts on an airplane and, and brings to our country. And so where are we within the uh, 25,000 commitment? So the 25,000 commitment, is that in addition to what Canada resettles typically every year anyways? Is it, or is it the total number of refugees that will be resettled in the next year or two? So Canada committed to taking um, 25,000 government-assisted refugees um, from Syria on top of their regular resettlement commitments. Uh, and those numbers... Um, are still underway, but will be completed by the end of 2016. We also committed to bringing in 25,000 Syrians uh, that are both government assisted and privately sponsored as quickly as possible. And that was met at the end of February. So um, the idea of blending the two programs was to benefit from the fact that Canada is one of the only countries in the world that has private sponsorship. Uh, that's a model that allows citizens to directly engage in supporting resettlement efforts. So. It's a, it's a very exciting and unique uh, feature of Canada's program, which basically says in addition to, to refugees that the state is going to uh, bring over, pay for, finance, support, and, and help to integrate. There'll be refugees who are brought over and supported both financially, but also in all kinds of other important ways by, by private citizens. So Canada has brought in 25,000 through a combination of both programs um, since November, between November and February, and, and more continuing to arrive from Syria and from other countries. And so how do you, how do you see that uh, Canada's role in the resettlement program fitting into the broader picture? I think that uh, it's really important to not be too self-congratulatory about what we've done in Canada. It's important to place the numbers in the global context. We've, we've brought in a large number of people fairly quickly, but when you compare that to the scope of what's happening internationally, it's almost insignificant. We're facing about 65 million uh, forcibly displaced people uh, in 2016, and you know, 25,000 is just a drop in the bucket. Um, that being said, and, and I should mention too that we're also not confronted with uh, huge numbers of asylum seekers or spontaneous arrivals. We benefit from a geographic privilege, uh, which means we don't get a lot of people showing up on our shores. Um, that being said, I think there are a number of really important features of what Canada has done recently that, that are important in the context of the global crisis. The first is the blended program that I just mentioned. Um, it's really innovative to allow citizens a, a vehicle through which to engage directly. Quite aside from all of the benefits for refugees, we know that um, privately sponsored refugees tend to integrate better because they have a lot of immediate support upon arrival. They have connections in the community. Um, there's all kinds of, of, of really personal and, and, and quite meaningful stories that have come out of those relationships that are formed all to the benefit of the refugee. I think it's really important that by providing citizens a tool for direct engagement, 
we've facilitated a mobilization that has then emboldened our political leadership. So when I speak about what's happened in Canada to an international audience, I always try to emphasize that the positive response here was led by citizens. Citizens mobilized in September and October, then we had a change of government, and the government followed um, on the leadership that was already in place by making a big um, political commitment for towards action. So it's, a, it's an important distinction because I think that providing that tool, a very concrete legal um, avenue through which citizens could demonstrate um, their solidarity and their commitment to these issues had both impacts for refugees and the citizens involved in the sponsorship, but also impacted our political landscape here in ways that are significant. So that that um, can't be underestimated. That blended model is important, and there's a lot of interest internationally in, in what happened. Other points that I'll just mention quickly, um, and we can pick up any of them which, which might be of interest. The operational processing in Canada was quite unique, and we, we were able to pilot a number of of really interesting ways of doing the overseas processing. So different ways of working with the UNHCR, who is an implementing partner and identifies vulnerable refugees, we were able to find new ways of working with them. So we got referrals um, for potential people to come to Canada in new and innovative ways. Uh, we have really interesting processing centers, particularly in Jordan, where we had a, a very large scale processing center. Um, that has been noticed and, and our, our colleagues from around the world are coming to look at it and, and understand just from an operational perspective what we were doing. Uh, and importantly, some innovations around how we did health checks and security checks in a way that maximized efficiency. So there's a whole number of things on the operational front. Um, the other important features are, I think, the combination of, of this, what I'll call physical solidarity. So actually bringing refugees to Canada at a time of uh, intense need in the global environment with financial solidarity. So Canada also made a, a $100 million pledge uh, to provide support in the region. And that's very important. Lots of refugees would prefer to stay closer to home. And a lot of uh, integration efforts are easier when they stay closer to home. So investing in, in both aspects of the program, I think, was important. Um, and the last one, and I think this is really an important one, particularly in today's climate, is the rhetorical messaging in Canada really stands out as being quite different um, than it is in a number of other states at the moment. And, and providing positive leadership on the messaging around refugees, I think, is actually very important, irrespective of the number of arrivals that ultimately end up arriving through the program. So having our Prime Minister go out and, and very publicly associate himself with this initiative um, is, is being commented on in all kinds of, of policy-making circles around the world, and I think it's something we should be very proud of. So just on the issue, there'll be people who want to know and who are concerned, and it came up during the last Canadian election, and the Republican nominee in the United States has voiced his concern or opinion numerous times about, uh, in his words, that we don't know who these people are. So what are, for those who don't know, the security checks that are done um, on resettled refugees from abroad before they arrive in Canada? So the security vetting um, process that happens overseas is, is very rigorous and involves um, a number of different tools, uh, biometric tools, as well as um, human touch. So, so Canadian officials who are highly trained in, in doing security-related interviews um, are involved as well as our security agencies. And, and I think what's important um, 
for Canadians to know and, and for other listeners who may be outside of Canada to know is uh, Canada was able to launch a rapid response that resettled people quickly without compromising on those security checks. So all of the normal processes, which again involve both uh, a hybrid of technological screens and human screens, were used at, and weren't um, compromised in any way, despite the fact that we were going quickly. And, and I mention it because there are some um, other examples in other other states where the security process leads to multi-year delays. And I think, again, Canada um, can feel good about the fact we've modeled an, a, an operation which shows you can do it, you can keep the security checks in place, and you can still do it quickly. And are these using the same tools that are used in the in the normal immigration streams, like, for example, in the express entry stream where we're processing permanent residents in six months? Um, are we... Are these essentially the same tools, or is there something different about the tools that are being used in the refugee stream? I think that the tools at their core are very similar. I mean, a lot of a lot of security experts would say that there's nothing that can replace an interview with a trained professional in terms of gathering information. Obviously, there's other there's other things that happen. There's checks through security databases, and we have partnerships around the world with security agencies, and all of those pieces are important, but there's a lot of emphasis on on having trained individuals meet face to face and have conversations to try to probe um, the histories of individuals who might be coming to our country, and and that's something that remains consistent across our our streams in the refugee context, and certainly in this context, um, there's a more uh, there's a slightly different setup, physical setup, in terms of where those interviews are happening and how you're scheduling them, and the operational piece is different. But at its core, it's a, an assessment by security experts of, of whether the person is credible, getting background information that can then be double-checked and verified uh, through the series of technological tools that are available. Well, we're seeing more interviews, you think, on the refugee side than we are in, in the same number of applications on uh, in the other streams uh, would be your sense of how things are working right now? No, I, I don't think I want to suggest that, only that I think clearly when you're doing a, a mass mobilization and you're you're investing, as we did in the Syrian operation, in, in a surge of capacity in a particular region, you're going to be setting up your, your operations and how you're running through interviews in a different way than if you're in a, uh, a more remote, visa location and people are coming in once a week and having an interview. So I just think the mechanics are different, but the the actual process um, of doing a security check is is pretty consistent. Um, is there anything else that, that you that you wanted to raise about the refugee issue? Because I know that Steve's eager to talk about the uh, implications of charter review, and uh, you, you've written a very interesting paper on that. But I'm gonna before we move on to that, do we have? Uh, was there, was there anything else that we that we missed in terms of uh, interesting things? Where where are things going with with our, our resettlement program? In your view, both uh, domestically and internationally, you mentioned before we started talking that the coup in uh, Turkey could raise significant implications for refugee resettlement, and I do wonder where we are. Like it is a it's a fascinating time to be um, helping to develop refugee law and policy given the unprecedented number of asylum seekers currently migrating from Northern Africa and the Middle East to Europe, the politics in the United States right now, and as we discussed last week, Canada seemingly sort of to be bucking the trend internationally. 
and Brexit, of course, which had a significant immigration component, maybe not refugees, maybe for some people, uh, the idea that leaving Europe would, or leaving the European Union would reduce the flow of refugees may have been a factor in voting to leave. So where do you see kind of the current situation globally? Is it different from last year? Where do you see it going in the next two to three years? And then I guess as a final question, what would your ideal vision on refugee resettlement globally be? Just a little question. <laughs> yeah. Right, that's a wrap-up question. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe just to briefly tackle Brexit head-on, because I do think that's important, and, and I'll just discuss it briefly outside of the, the more general comments about what's happening globally. I think one of the disturbing aspects of what happened um, in the Brexit situation was a conflation of migration and, and asylum seekers. And it, one could speculate that it was a deliberate conflation on the part of um, certain campaigners to try to, to use a fear uh, in a way that doesn't necessarily elicit a logical response. And, and the reason I think that is concerning is at a time when we desperately need to be increasing people's understanding of the need to offer protection, what the legal obligations are, but also that there is no need to fear um, people who are, who are themselves fleeing from very desperate situations. The campaigning around Brexit became a bit toxic and I think counterproductive to those objectives. So at a time when we need positive reinforcement and education because we desperately need, the world is facing a crisis, and we definitely, definitely need local support if um, resettlement efforts and other efforts are going to work, uh, we have the opposite effect. And, and unfortunately, we've seen in the days post-Brexit a manifestation of um, that hate in a very physical and public way. So I do think that what happened there, quite aside from, from other implications, market implications and, and all kinds of other things, I'm sure everyone's watching closely from a, from a migration perspective, the conflation of, of migrant workers with refugees, the use of imagery that suggests a loss of control and a threat, I think should be something we can, we can point to with a bit of concern. More globally, uh, it is definitely called a crisis. I don't use that word lightly for, for good reason. I think we we have an unprecedented number of people being displaced every single day, and it's not good for um, both, both humanitarian um, objectives, but also for global security to have this kind of mass displacement and not have in place an ordered approach for trying to get people settled and allow some continuity in their lives. So we're facing this interesting situation where at a time when there's all kinds of really good reasons to try to look for durable solutions and try to be creative and innovative with our approaches, we are facing um, increasing resistance in certain places. So so that's a concern. And, and you mentioned Turkey. The reason the situation in Turkey is so important is they're hosting millions of refugees. So as we see crackdowns in Turkey, state of emergency, many, many arrests over the last few days, academics losing civil servants, losing their jobs, all of these kinds of moves are a little bit inconsistent with a state that, that can offer durable solutions for vulnerable persons. And if we see 
a large amount of secondary movement out of Turkey, we're looking at millions of people who will once again be looking for alternatives. So I think we do need to to recognize the link between forced migration and, and people who are moving and the ge- larger geopolitical issues in the world and, and look with some concern around not only what's actually happening, but the rhetorical messaging and what that's doing to, to real safety options. Uh, I'll maybe just close because there's a million different threads that, that are wrapped up in those last few questions by saying, I think, I think where we, we need to be is somewhere that's really innovative and creative and looks at these challenges um, with a spirit of, of renewed interest, um, renewed commitment, but which doesn't lose track of the fact that people are, are fleeing serious harms and the international community has a responsibility to offer them protection. So it's not about charity or choice. It really is um, a responsibility, a legal and, and moral one. And our, our challenge collectively is to figure out how we can execute on that responsibility in a way that is manageable for all parties, state actors across the world, but also NGOs and, of course, um, citizens and, and refugees themselves. So we need a lot of collective thinking around those issues and, and negative damaging rhetoric um, really is unhelpful at a time when, when we've already got a lot of challenges. So I'll leave it with that and and say that I, I think there's there's hope, there's optimism. I think the Canadian mobilization demonstrates that there is a lot of goodwill and, and people do understand and want to help if the tools are available to them. But uh, there's also still an awful lot of work to be done. So you've uh, you've also done some work on uh, recent or recently, not that recently. Uh, you you wrote a paper after uh, Edgar Schmidt had uh, come forward with his experience in the Department of Justice with respect to the vetting process uh, for charter compliance legislation. So do you want to just explain what that uh, what it was that Edgar Schmidt was uh, was putting forward and. Uh, what what came out of that and, and just what came out of your paper? Uh... Sure. So I actually began that paper before Edgar Schmidt um, came forward and then had to had the had to scramble to make sure that, that it reflected accurately the important insights that his um, his court case provided. My concern was the fact that our previous government seemed to be passing a lot of legislation which was not only suspect under the charter, but seemed to be really inconsistent with the charter. And the piece of legislation that uh, I was really conscious of because I was was doing work in the area was the Human Smuggling Act in its first and original manifestation. And that document allowed for unrestricted detention of women, men, and children, even where there were no administrative concerns or um, criminal concerns. So why discretion to a minister to decide to take a child for no reason and put her in detention for very lengthy periods of time with no review? Um, That struck me as being, again, not sort of in the debatable gray area and the margins of what might be allowable under the charter, but actually very clearly in contravention of the charter. Uh, And I wasn't alone in thinking that, um, not only because other academics and experts thought that, but because the Supreme Court of Canada had recently made some decisions in a much more complicated context involving involving, um, suspects of terrorism that you can't actually have indefinite detention in Canada without review. So if you can't have it in the context of terrorism, didn't make sense to me, you could have it in the context of um, asylum-seeking children. 
So um, how was this legislation coming to to pass in Canada, given that I also knew we had a mechanism which required uh, any legislation that was tabled by the government to be vetted by the Department of Justice for charter compliance, and, and that is the, the section you referenced, section 4.1 of the Department of Justice Act. Um, so it piqued my curiosity, and that's what sort of led me down the road of, of writing this paper, um, basically questioning whether or not the effectiveness and the utility of section 4.1 was being eroded or had been eroded in a way that it was no longer meaningfully um, capturing legislation or, or identifying legislation that so, would be inconsistent. With so just term. to backstep, what does Section 4.1 of the Department of Justice Act require? Um, it requires that there is a, a check of uh, all legislation by Department of Justice lawyers before government legislation before it's tabled in the House of Commons. If the Department of Justice lawyers determine that there's an inconsistency with the Charter, a report has to be issued. Uh, and that report basically is a flag or an indication to the House that there has been an inconsistency that's been found. So the important feature is it doesn't prevent the government from passing that legislation. It does require that notice be given. And um, just to an important point of clarification, the human smuggling legislation that I was just describing wasn't um, flagged in this way. And so that led me to wonder how it could be that it had been gone, that it had gone through this vetting process and had been found to be not inconsistent with the Charter. So to move so, from there to Edgar Schmidt, um, so I was in the process of that exploration uh, when Edgar Schmidt, who was a uh, a lawyer with the Department of Justice came forward and in a, a lawsuit which can really really be equated, I think, to whistleblowing, uh, alleged that the government wasn't meeting its requirements under that provision. And part of the lawsuit uh, allowed for disclosure of a lot of documents. And th those documents showed was that there was an erosion over time on how the government was interpreting the notion of inconsistency. So what the standard had to, had to be for the flag of inconsistency to be raised, uh, was indeed eroding over time. And that was consistent with my, my theory before we had access to those documents, just on the basis of what legislation was being tabled. So in, in the context of these reports that the Department of Justice prepares, who is the onus on to include the report in the law? So the government will propose legislation. A Department of Justice lawyer will provide a report as to the constitutionality of the law. Is it the government that then decides if there needs to be a report or the Department of Justice? So the legislation requires that the government has this vetting um, as part of its process. And then if, if a um, inconsistency is found, a report it's essentially just a flag that is put on the legislation and it, when, it, when it comes to the House of Commons. So um, the challenge is the Department of Justice, of course, can give advice to the government and, and does so all the time in an, an iterative process. Um, it's very conceivable, in fact, very likely that Department of Justice lawyers will constantly be saying to their clients in the various ministries, 
there's a potential tartar deficiency here that needs to be corrected. We don't have access to that iterative process, but we can assume that it happens. If at a certain point the Department of Justice lawyers are saying there's a deficiency here and the government client says, well, we want to proceed despite that insufficiency there has or deficiency, there has to be some sort of risk assessment. And, and there's a, a, a threshold that's in the legislation that says once that risk assessment comes to the point of inconsistency, the government isn't able just to table it. The government has to table it with notice to the House that there are charter inconsistencies that have been found by the Department of Justice. And the, the part that has been shifting over time is where that red line gets, gets um, drawn in this spectrum of, of risk assessment. So, so the language has been changing, but importantly, conceptually, we can imagine that an increasing amount of risk, of charter risk, has been acceptable um, before the government feels its obligation to report is triggered. And, and that's the part that I think um, requires us to think about whether or not Section 4.1 continues to maintain its, its function as a notice mechanism to make sure that people are conscious of uh, the fact that legislation is being tabled that potentially has these, these charter concerns embedded in it. Then there can be open and public debate. Ultimately, the government does still retain the power to pass that legislation, but the public, um, through its, its members in the House, is put on notice of the fact that that is what's happening. So from a perspective of a litigator, one of the things that, that struck me as very interesting about your paper and, and about the Edgar Schmidt revelations, um, if the government is not... So Parliament has passed this legislation that says, if something is unconstitutional, you need to tell us. The Department of Justice isn't doing that. So Parliament doesn't get the notice that Parliament expects to get. Now, when we're challenging legislation, there's a presumption built in that legislation is constitutional. And my view, or at least my initial view, is that uh, if Parliament isn't getting the notice, then they've been given essentially a false assurance that they, they're getting these comfort letters from the Department of Justice saying, don't worry, and, and they're, they're implicit comfort letters with each piece of legislation that says, the fact that we're putting this forward without a flag means that somebody in the Department of Justice thinks this is constitutional. Does that undermine the presumption in the courts of constitutionality? Because there is no notice, something is constitutional one step further and, and say that in some cases it's actually um, explicitly mentioned as part of the legislative process that there has been a vetting process um, and the Department of Justice lawyers have found something to be not inconsistent with the Charter. Uh, so that is frequently relied on by ministers when they appear before committee and, and the, the way it often manifests itself is questions about the constitutionality about uh, particular portions of a bill are avoided with a response framed as saying, well, we can't talk about the details, but trust us, government lawyers have found that this is not in violation or not inconsistent with the Charter. Um, so it's implicit when no flag is raised, but sometimes it's also explicit. Don't ask too many hard questions. Just trust us. Our lawyers have done this background work. Where I, I hesitate to venture is, are there, is this the only indicator that something is consistent with the Charter? So, so can we necessarily go from this mechanism isn't working accurately 
to therefore there's no presumption of constitutionality. That might be a bit of a leap. Um, But I do think it's definitely something that could be explored as part of a a litigation strategy and pointing out in particular that our legislative structure assumes this vetting occurred. If you have the benefit of committee um, where a minister says, trust us, the reason that you should trust us is because we've had the vetting that occurs. I think you can ultimately rebut those aspects of the argument um, on the basis that 4.1 doesn't seem to be yielding any reporting. So I just wanted your, your thoughts on one of the, sorry, I had the opportunity to, to see Edgar Schmidt talk when I was in Montreal uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, and one of the things that I found particularly fascinating about his talk was about his role as a Department of Justice lawyer. And, and he talked about the role of the Department of Justice lawyer very similar to the role of the corporate lawyer. And what he, or not similar, but in the sense of the role in relation to the chairman of the board. And what he said was that he didn't see his role as a Department of Justice lawyer as working for the government that was in power. He saw his role as working for the institution or for for the country, very similar to the role of the corporate lawyer who's not answerable to the chairman of the board and who's not working for the chairman of the board but actually has to work in the company's interests, even if that interest conflicts with those of the chairman. Um, do you have any thoughts on that or did you have you had a chance? I know you've had a chance to talk to Edgar a lot more than I have and I just was... Uh, um, Interested in your thoughts on that role of the uh, of the government lawyer uh, in when they find themselves in a situation like that that uh, that Mr. Schmidt found himself in? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think there are um, conflicting views on the ethical obligations of Department of Justice lawyers um, to their clients on the one hand, and of course, lawyers will be aware of all of the um, duties that come with having a. a a client, including duties around confidentiality and loyalty, um, and how that um, is unique in the in the when you're a public lawyer and working for the state, uh, because on the other hand, you are also having duties to the public and and duties to the institution. And you know we see this a little bit, I think, in the role of prosecutors, who um, have a very unique mandate to act in the public interest, and and arguably that extends also to Department of Justice lawyers. Um, how it manifests itself in a practical sense, I think, is where it's uh, where it gets a bit debatable. Um, Edgar Schmidt, I think, it's fair to say, is a controversial figure, where some people see him as a whistleblower and they very much admire um, the way that he came forward, and others are concerned with the fact that um, he is not a normal whistleblower in the sense of of, uh, a public employee who shares documents or comes forward with a narrative, but rather he was a lawyer who had a duty to a client um, that was violated. So so that is, um, I think, a a fairly contentious aspect of what happened. Um, Documents were very carefully redacted. Um, There was all kinds of efforts that um, Edgar made in in coming forward to try to ensure he was walking that fine line. It is a, a controversial space and one I think that um, is being uh, quite important, that is important to debate and to consider. Uh, I will recommend one of my colleagues at the University of Ottawa, Adam Dodek, has done a significant amount of writing on the role of government lawyers in particular, including their ethical responsibilities. Um, and I'm sure that uh, there are many papers there that explore these issues, um, including around the very particular duties, um, ethical duties and legal duties of um 
of lawyers who might have a conflict between the public interest and and the the specific interests of, of their individual clients. So I can I can refer listeners to those resources if they want to pick up that that aspect of the debate. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Fully appreciate that there's a humanitarian crisis that affects everyone in the region. It's very bad there. That said, um, these people are being eradicated off the face of the earth, and we need to do more. You know, put politics aside. We need to do more to help this group. Uh, so the one of the things I was hoping to talk about the uh, immigration committee or the standing committee on citizenship and immigration uh, has been active in the summer, which is uh, a bit uh, out of the ordinary. Uh, the uh, conservative members, uh, in particular the uh, Michelle Rempel, had pushed very hard for there to be a study on what was framed as vulnerable groups, uh, in particular with respect to the Yazidi. Uh, uh, minority or religious minority in uh, Iraq and Syria. Uh, so those hearings have been happening this week. Uh, a number of witnesses have, have come forward. There's been a lot of uh, controversy and debate around that, uh, in particular with respect to uh, the selection process and, and the, the resources that were put, being put towards this under the previous government and how that uh, certain groups were being prioritized. Uh, and and deprioritizing others, uh, in particular the uh, testimony from David Manicom this week, uh, which uh, and who's got, David Manicom? Sorry, David Manicom, who is uh, well, that's an interesting. Uh, he's one of the directors at Citizenship and Immigration. I'm not sure exactly what his uh, his exact title is, but he uh, uh, in his testimony talked about the the previous government's prioritizing uh, of certain refugees, which means in practical terms, we've talked about the levels in the past. Uh, of minimizing uh, bringing in other types of refugees, and in particular the the controversy around whether or not the the conservative government was prioritizing Christian uh, or or other uh, religious minorities over the Sunni Muslim majority in uh, in Syria and Iraq. Yeah, it'll be interesting to follow what the committee does. Um, I was actually when I was uh, driving home from kayaking yesterday, I was thinking about. The issue because it was in the uh, it was on the radio, and a thought that crossed my mind was when we look at World War II or the area the time frame just before World War II. Now, granted, there are huge differences, but nobody at the time was taking Jewish refugees, and obviously in World War II the consequences were disastrous. Let's suppose that because the government, the current government, doesn't want to be seen to be prioritizing one group or the other that disastrous consequences result with the near uh, genocide of a specific small group. How will history judge today's policymakers who prioritized or wanted, or who in the interest of not wanting to prioritize any group or be seen to be not discriminating against other groups necessarily, but just to be in the interest of fairness, that led to very few people of a very small minority being selected and their near genocide. Um, I don't know if it's, 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 it's evolving thought in my, it's a developing thought in my head that just occurred to me when I was driving home. I mean, I think it's, it comes down to the problem that, uh, that Jennifer Bond was pointing out earlier is that we're talking about very, very small numbers out of 65 million refugees. The demand is enormous and, and trying to select within that, 
Um, the other question is ultimately the UNHCR is uh, identifying and, and has a process for identifying the most vulnerable groups. Um, and, and ultimately, whether you agree or disagree with that process seems to be what the, uh, the, the committee hearings are about this week is whether or not that process should or can be relied upon. Um, and it's, it's uh, obviously, we'll, we'll see how things evolve uh, there. All right, time now for uh, this week's case of the week, which is Lamson and Canada, L-A-M-S-E-N. The neutral citation for the lawyers listening is 2016 FC 815. This is a case pertaining to misrepresentation. Any um, act or omission in an immigration application that can cause an error in the administration of immigration law in Canada will result in a foreign national or permanent resident being inadmissible to Canada for a period of five years. And in this case, just to backstep for a second, as you can imagine, in the filling out of applications that often are numerous pages, people are going to make mistakes. So one of the issues that often arises in misrepresentation is whether or not it was whether or not the omission or mistake was material and whether it should result in a five year ban on entering Canada. And in this case, the applicant, uh, Mr. Lamson, put or Mrs. Lamson put the described her employment history in her forms incorrectly in one section, but in another section of her application described them correctly, and the supporting document was consistent with one of her answers to the forms. Immigration Refugees and Citizenship Canada refused the application on the grounds of misrepresentation. Justice Diner determined that this was unreasonable. The significance of this case is it is a clear statement from the court, and I will quote paragraph 24 of the decision, that a visa application must be considered in its totality. It cannot be compartmentalized, particularly when a finding of misrepresentation carries such serious consequences. And so what this case would appear to stand for is the proposition that where there are inconsistencies within an application, uh, such as different, slightly different answers in employment or address history, that that should not lead to a finding of misrepresentation. I think one of the other things that we that uh, I, I take from the case, which I've also seen happening at the immigration division, is that the change in the legislation that that increased the penalties with respect to misrepresentation, where now it's not only five years that it, so it used to be two years, and it was only two years of inadmissibility. Now it's five years. You can't even make a permanent residence application. Uh, the consequences have gotten much more severe that the threshold for misrepresentation appears to be going up. So the, the, both the board and the court and, and hopefully officers are more reluctant to make the findings in the first place. So, um, that's it. I, I suppose an unintended consequence of, uh, uh, of increasing the penalty misrepresentation. Yeah. Misrepresentation is definitely an evolving area of the law and, uh, one to follow. One. Switching gears to the, I think it's almost, it's somewhere between 5 to 10% of Canadians who are Nexus members, uh, was the latest stat that I've seen. The Canada Border Services Agency is currently doing consultations on changing the requirements for Nexus, and it will actually tighten up program requirements a little bit. Some of the changes that are occurring is that 
uh, criminal convictions will render people inadmissible if they want to be members of Nexus. Nexus, for those who don't know, is the Trusted Traveler program that allows for expedited border crossing between Canada and the U.S., as well as expedited security checks at airports for all flights, as well as international arrivals. And criminal convictions currently lead to many people being inadmissible or unable to participate in Nexus, but the changes will expand it. So indictable offenses or any criminal record of multiple convictions will render the person ineligible for their lifetime. One summary conviction or two summary convictions arising out of a single occurrence will result in a 10-year ban that will start after the imposed sentence. So it's the duration of the sentence and then 10 years after. Any convictions regarding uh, drugs and chemical precursors, obscenity and hate propaganda, endangered species, and other offenses will result in a lifetime ban. The interesting question, of course, with drugs is whether or not uh, the possession of marijuana could lead to a lifetime ban on being in Nexus. And finally, it's currently a customs violation will result in a six-year ban from being eligible for Nexus that will be increasing to a 10-year ban for, in this case, multiple minor seizures within a 10-year period. And another one last change that is occurring is that uh, the residency requirement for permanent residence, which is currently three years in Canada, is being changed that applicants must have legally resided uh, in Canada during those three years. I always recommend to all permanent residents who live in Canada that uh, once they get their permanent resident card, the immediate next step should be to go get Nexus membership so that new permanent residents to Canada can have greater benefits, greater travel benefits to the United States and within Canada than uh, 90% of Canadians and an even higher percentage of Americans and uh, continue to think that it's the ultimate bonus to becoming a permanent resident, in my opinion. I love next, that next little add-on that will just make it that much sweeter. Yeah, that's, uh, it's always surprising to me in the, in the uh, United States uh, where you get faster, uh, you get onto the planes faster domestically in the United States than Americans. Oh, it's crazy. Uh, like, And because Canadians have such a higher percentage of the population who are Nexus members, Canadians are going to wind up being these privileged travelers within the United States on a flight from uh, L.A. to New York. You'll have a long queue of Americans waiting to get their bags checked from TSAs and then a disproportionate number of Canadians uh, skipping the line and uh, going through the pre-clear. So it's a, an evolving area that uh, I think uh, <laughs> I think is going to become uh, become a bigger issue in the years to come. Uh, so the my my next uh, item for today is the uh, the decision from the Supreme Court of Canada in Wilson versus Atomic Energy, which is a, a labor law case. Uh, but uh, the, the reason that I was uh, bringing it forward and uh, for, for the lawyers out there, it's a 2016 SCC 29, uh, very recent decision from the Supreme Court that deals, uh, and the reason it's interesting to me is a long op-ed, uh, and I can only describe it as an op-ed by Justice Abella on the standard of review. And for those of you who haven't been following uh, the standard of review uh, since the decision in Dunsmuir uh, in 2008, I believe, the 
application of how to deal with the standard of review and judicial review. So how how much the court interferes or how much the court defers to immigration officers or tribunals or other decision makers in the administrative state uh, has been a great deal. There's been a great deal of controversy over the past years, and we've got a case uh, coming up before the Supreme Court uh, in a case called Trent, where a number of these issues come uh, are coming to a head as well. Uh, what's interesting about this case is that Justice Abella, uh, on her own, uh, she writes for the majority, uh, and then in an, an obiter op-ed, essentially sets out a whole new approach to standard of review. Uh, and uh, I won't get into the details of it, but um, she very makes it very clear that nobody's to rely upon it, that it's just a proposal, that it's just to be put out there. The four other members of the court that sign on to her decision make it clear that they're not signing on to the op-ed. Uh, the only person who responds to it is Cromwell in, in concurring reasons on his own uh, in any kind of in any kind of substantive way. Um, and I, I thought it was interesting for two reasons. One is to see where Abella's rethinking is going in this area, but secondly, that she's using a Supreme Court decision to do this, as opposed to just writing a paper like Justice Stratus did. Uh, you know, he he just put a paper on SSRN, uh, and you know, a lot of us have read it and discussed it. Uh, she decided that she was going to use a, a Supreme Court decision to do that. So, for those of you who are interested in this area, uh, um, it's it's an interesting read uh, and an interesting place for an op-ed reason this is all important is people often ask, uh, how much does it matter which border officer I get? People often think that immigration law and whether they'll be admitted to Canada largely depends on who they get at the border. And depending on how these standard of review cases go, it may or may not be the case that how immigration law is interpreted and applies and applied will depend on who the border officer or visa officer is, and the Supreme Court of Canada has to determine soon and will be determining in that upcoming Tran case just how much leeway individual immigration and border officers have in determining not just whether to admit someone to Canada, but what actual immigration law is. And that concludes this week's podcast. Next week, Raj Sharma, a Calgary immigration lawyer, will join us to discuss marriage fraud.